Through a PubMed search going back 20 years, I found over 15,000 peer-reviewed publications on MRI-based measures used in MS research. But we still have no standardized quantitative MRI-based metrics to guide precision medicine for MS in clinical practice. Zero. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we will be talking about multiple sclerosis and the role that real-world data and precision medicine approaches play in treating this disease effectively. It is hard to find a more experienced and knowledgeable expert on this topic than our today's guest, Dr. Rick Rudick. Rick is a neurologist with more than 25 years of experience at Cleveland Clinic and more than six years at the biopharmaceutical company Biogen. Rick developed and directed the Milan Center for Multiple Sclerosis Treatment and Research at Cleveland Clinic and served as vice president at Biogen, where he directed a multiple sclerosis innovation hub and oversaw medical research for late-stage and marketed products. He has co-authored more than 250 peer-reviewed research papers related to multiple sclerosis and is one of the most cited researchers in the field. Rick, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you on our show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here with you. Perfect. So let's start right away. I would like to start actually with your story. You obviously have such a rich career working for multiple decades as practicing neurologist, researcher, and also being a part of the pharmaceutical industry with Biogen. I'm wondering what got you interested in neurology and multiple sclerosis in the first place, and how has your career developed since? I got interested in neurology from a personal circumstance. Uh, my uh, father had been diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor uh, when I was uh, still in college. And um, he, he, it was, this was not specifically treatable other than through um, symptom and comfort care. And he died when I was a first-year medical student. And I think this influenced my decision to go into the field of neurology simply because I felt there had to be better treatments, and I thought I could work on that. Um, I got interested in multiple sclerosis uh, when I was just finishing my neurology training and got involved with a postdoctoral fellowship in a, in a multiple sclerosis lab in Rochester, New York and uh, began seeing MS patients and got very interested in what could be done to improve their, um, their lives and their outcomes. Uh, I moved from Rochester, New York to Cleveland, where I spent the next 27 years working on building a new multiple sclerosis center, the Mellon Center, and got involved in clinical research uh, more generally and I became very, very interested at that stage in how uh, research could be integrated into healthcare to have a bigger impact. I went to Biogen because of the opportunity to develop an innovation program uh, measuring the outcome of MS in the real-world clinical practice uh, setting. So that's my background very briefly. Understood. And um, very sorry to hear for your loss, of course. Uh, but it's, I think, so important to have that personal motivation to, to build your career around and uh, obviously had uh, such, a, such a successful career. And uh, MS is um, kind of a field that, unlike many other neurological diseases, has seen some sort of um, 
success uh, in terms of disease-modifying treatment. So maybe you can tell our audience what are the main classes of those disease-modifying therapeutics that are used to manage um, MS today, um, and uh, why is it so different uh, to treat MS versus, versus other neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's or some other forms of dementia? Well, the idea for multiple sclerosis uh, treatments or disease-modifying treatments grew from the observation um, that uh, MS brains had multifocal inflammation. And um, uh, at the same time, there were observations of abnormalities in the immune system in people with MS. So it was natural to test uh, drugs that had immunomodulatory capabilities. And this was the underlying basis for the first uh, group of MS disease-modifying drugs, interferon beta, several different preparations of interferon beta, and glutiramer acetate, which is a a, a, a peptide uh, polymer uh, thought to um, uh, alter the immune response to myelin. Uh, But the the reason that these trials were successful, uh, I believe, was the presence of of a biomarker of treatment effect, and that biomarker was based on the MRI. Uh, It turned out that lesion formation, which you can see on the MRI as bright white spots or as enhancement following the administration of a gadolinium, uh, which can leak into uh, areas of inflammation, that turned out to be much more sensitive than the clinical outcome, which was relapse, approximately 10 times more sensitive. And so during the earliest trials, it was observed that the treatment benefit on the relapses was about 30%, but the treatment um, effect from the MRI scans was about 60 or 70%, so double or more. So it became possible then to screen medications for potential effectiveness using the MRI as a a biomarker. Because of this, uh, multiple other drugs that were immunomodulatory or immunosuppressive were tested using MRI, and that turned out to be highly predictive of the clinical benefit. So we now have uh, well over a dozen uh, treatments uh, ranging from the original interferon preparations and glutiramer acetate now through monoclonal antibodies and other more highly effective therapies. Progress has been slower in other diseases because of the lack of a sensitive uh, biologic or imaging marker of treatment effect, which translates into a clinical benefit. I believe we'll see that. Uh, as the science advances and measurement science advances. As a matter of fact, we're already beginning to see that in uh, Alzheimer treatments targeted at removing amyloid, which can now be measured fairly directly with uh, imaging. Perfect. Understood. And as you said, those biomarkers play a very important role in our understanding of the disease progression uh, and also kind of the response of individual patients to, to those therapeutics. So when we speak about precision medicine and multiple sclerosis, uh, where do we stand at uh, today um, and how important uh, in general personalized approaches are to treat um, multiple sclerosis? Well, as I mentioned, we have over a dozen disease-modifying treatments that are approved and in use in the clinic. Uh, There's general agreement now, which has evolved over the past 10 to 15 years, that it's important to treat patients early because the same treatment has less effectiveness as the disease becomes entrenched and advanced. There's agreement that the disease-modifying therapy should be tailored to the individual case, meaning the higher efficacy treatments, which may have somewhat more risk, uh, tend to be reserved for cases that have uh, worse outlook. Um, And there's general agreement that patients should be monitored uh, while on disease-modifying therapy and treatment should be 
altered if there are problems with uh, tolerability, adverse events, or if the patients break through. Uh, the general approach is fairly consistent, but the assessments are mostly subjective. So a, a patient may, may need high-efficacy treatment according to one doctor, but not according to a different doctor. Um, pioneering efforts, starting in the 1980s, uh, initiated practice registries. Uh, this was initially started in France, but it spread and uh, really to worldwide practice registries in multiple sclerosis. The idea there is to collect standardized data from patients in MS clinics and then analyze that data in order to learn and advance the field. Um, and those have been really quite important uh, but the unmet need still remains uh, for standardized quantitative metrics that are applied to all patients as opposed to selected cohorts uh, as such as clinical trials or even selection of patients for the registries. So to, to answer, summarize the answer to your question, there has been progress in standardizing the approach but there's still tremendous need for more quantitative precision methods uh, to drive progress. Understand. And um, I feel like it's a perfect segue uh, to actually something that, that you have been doing uh, recently and the initiative that is called a mass path. Um, can you tell our audience more about it? Um, what kind of data do you collect with this MS pass and what is your global uh, goal uh, with this program and all the participating institutions? Well, the original purpose for MS-PAS was to determine uh, the feasibility of a learning health system for multiple sclerosis. And um, I'll describe the learning health system in a, in a minute, but the overall goal was to turn medical practice into a data generation engine that could be used to accelerate progress in the field. And that progress in the data could be used for a variety of purposes, including staging the disease severity, defining what, what good outcome is from disease therapy, uh, creating precise methodology to monitor and uh, standardized approaches to changing therapy, and also more consistent approaches to measuring the patient experience. The bottom line um, goal was to try to develop better outcomes, potentially uh, at a lower cost. Um, now, the elements of the learning health uh, system, which, which was advocated in the United States by the Institute of Medicine over the past 20 years was to transition healthcare from a, uh, an art to a science to drive better outcomes at lower care. And the concepts were to engage the, the patients and the providers in a partnership to develop and to deploy digital technology in practice in order to standardize data collection, to automate that um, in, and to integrate it into the workflow in order to reduce the burden on patients and the providers, and then to use that data in, uh, in a way that would result in insights that could be fed back into healthcare to improve uh, decision-making and continuously improve outcomes. So this was the uh, concept uh, of MS-PAS. Um, it, it, it's difficult, um, and that may explain why this approach hasn't been taking, taken more widely. Uh, one of the difficulties that I would highlight is that um, payers, whether they be insurance companies or governments, generally pay for activity such as patient visits or surgeries or hospitalizations or products. And they haven't yet traditioned a transition to payment for outcome 
from the interventions. Um, this this is uh, why there has not been a financial incentive at the healthcare level uh, to do the sort of thing that we did as a demonstration in MS Paths. There are other challenges, of course, uh, related to implementing standardized data collection in medical practice, but I think the biggest reason this hasn't been much more widespread is the financial incentives are not there at the healthcare level. Understand. Yeah, it is really hard uh, to kind of bring those new approaches based on real-world data on precision medicine to life, as you mentioned. I think it's a case for for many diseases, not just multiple sclerosis, that um, payers are not really thinking from the outcomes perspective, um, how our uh, healthcare systems work across the world, uh, essentially, as you said, more um, based on the activities uh, and services that hospitals or diagnostic labs are providing and not based on the on those outcomes. But I think what you've managed to achieve with a mass pass program was, was quite remarkable. If I'm not mistaken, you, you managed to collect data on almost 15,000 patients um, across uh, 10 large um, hospital centers uh, based in three different countries. Um, how difficult was it to to actually manage this project and then align data collection, uh, align the protocols, uh, standardize data analysis and storage um, across uh, such a diverse set of participants in this program? Well, I think it was challenging to, um, to get this off the ground. Um, at the present time, it's working quite well. I believe it's succeeded 20,000 patients and uh, patients who entered at the very beginning are going on five years of uh, follow-up. Uh, but I would say that uh, I'll give you some of the challenges. There are many of them. We could do a full podcast on that, but I'll highlight a few. Number one, uh, treatment and research uh, have become separate enterprises, separate and re- rather non-overlapping enterprises. So the mindset is that a patient is participating either in a patient visit or in a research protocol. It's not both. Of course, patients in research protocols also get health care frequently from the investigators, but they have become separate enterprises on many levels, the financing, the regulatory aspects, uh, the administrative aspects. they are separate. So the first thing that we encountered was the question, is this a research project or is this a patient care project? And some some of the investigators and the institutions thought that it seemed like a better way to do research. Others thought that it seemed like a, an improved form of care. But the reality of the situation is the mindset had to change. This is not neither. This is this is care integrated with research. And so that required a mindset change that a lot of the institutions weren't sure how do you handle this, even from the point of view of IRB. IRB doesn't tend to oversee patient care. They tend to oversee research, but this was a very different form of research. The second, second issue is that there is a tremendous need to protect the data. And so this gets into issues related to data security and patient confidentiality and privacy. And it took quite a bit of effort not only to create the systems to ensure that, but also to gain a level of confidence at the, at the healthcare uh, institutional level. And then a third, which I think is worth highlighting, is the the difference between creating a technology that can be used for assessment purposes and integrating that into healthcare. Those are frequently not clearly distinguished, especially by uh, individuals or groups that are creating new technology. The barriers to acceptance and deployment in healthcare um, are extreme, which is why so many inventions never get reduced to practice. Over the past 30 years, 
MRI has informed our understanding of MS and catalyzed development of disease-modifying drugs. Through a PubMed search, I found over 15,000 peer-reviewed publications on MRI-based measures used in MS research going back 20 years. But we still have no standardized quantitative MRI-based metrics to guide precision medicine for MS in clinical practice. Zero. Monitoring MS patients in practice still depends on time-consuming, subjective, and potentially inaccurate visual inspection of the images. If this problem were fixed, I predict that MRI would have as big an impact on precision medicine in MS as it's had on testing new drugs and clinical trials. And so those are the three challenges that, that I would highlight that we encountered. One just had to do with in instituting a new a new concept, which is merging patient care and research. The second with privacy and patient confidentiality. And the third with not, not only inventing new methods to quantify patient outcomes, but then getting them implemented in the practice and, uh, and deployed. I think each of this, uh, each of these three challenges, is a Herculean task uh, for for the healthcare uh, system to deal with. Because essentially, these are most of them are fundamental challenges that we are facing uh, in the way the system is organized and the way we think about research, treatment, uh, and clinical trials, uh, and it requires like a massive paradigm shift to be solved. We are doing this show for you, and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Or you can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To download the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t dot com. The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. Make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. After collecting the data uh, in the MSPASS project, um, what type of insights you could generate uh, collecting those data and what are perhaps some restrictions with regards to data analysis, data processing, uh, data reproducibility that would um, prevent um, scientific community and clini clinical community uh, from uh, retrieving uh, most of the clinical value out of, out of that data? Well, first, maybe I will describe what data is being collected as as a routine part of healthcare in MSPaths, and then I can talk somewhat about the uh, the, the kinds of insights we're getting and hope to get, um, and then then I can get into the issue of uh, data of data sharing. Um, we're collecting a variety of a clinical outcome. Uh, measures as part of routine care. So these are considered standard of care uh, data elements. Um, and as you might expect, uh, they're uh, elements of disease history and demographics, uh, neurologic function, uh, and MRI-based measures. Um, now, these are not revolutionary in terms of categories. Uh, every practice collects demographic and disease history, does a neurologic exam, and an MRI. So uh, that's not uh, all that uh, uh, that's not all that innovative. Uh, but uh, we created a um, an iPad-based platform in which to standardize the clinical assessments. Uh, that platform was named the Multiple Sclerosis Performance Test, or MSPT. Uh, there are references to that in the literature. 
But the MSPT was designed so that it was patient-administered and allowing the patient to conduct uh, her own exam or his own exam um, drastically reduces the burden on the provider while at the same time enhancing the engagement of the patient. So within that MSPT, uh, there's standardized history uh, of MS, standardized demographics, um, as as well as um, tests of neurologic function, including cognition, dexterity, walking, and vision. Those tests were adopted from the MS research field. Um, the cognitive test is, 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 is simply a task of um, processing, mental processing speed based on something called the symbol digit modalities test. Uh, the vision test is a low contrast letter acuity test that's been used widely in uh, MS and other fields for vision. Uh, the manual dexterity test was, was developed based on the nine hole peg test, which is how quickly you can move pegs from uh, in and out of holes. And, and the walking is simply a 25 foot walk, which is timed. So those things are all collected by the patient at the beginning of the visit and are available through integration with the electronic health record available to the provider at the point of care, even if that's five minutes later. We also included a patient-reported measure, the NeuroQual. This brief computer-adapted questionnaire measures and quantifies physical, emotional, and social health across 12 dimensions, providing standardized scores. Together with standardized tests of neurologic function, the patient reports help provide a more comprehensive picture of how MS affects individual patients and the impact of treatment. Uh, the um, imaging was done in collaboration with Siemens Health and Ears, and the uh, idea there was to superstandardize the image acquisition and to create an inline image analysis program focused on the number and volume of lesions, the change in lesions, as well as the brain volume, which uh, goes down over time as a result of the MS process. So the history, demographics, uh, neurologic function, and MRI were all considered standard of care uh, because those dimensions are used by neurologists worldwide in caring for MS patients. Uh, in addition, as an add-on research component to the program, uh, we, we've collected DNA, RNA, and serum in a biorepository. Now, insights, what can we learn from this? Well, we can learn a lot of things because this sort of granular data on patients just having healthcare visits for MS has really never been collected. So we can look at uh, things ranging from practice patterns to characteristics of an unselected clinic population, uh, subsets of that, such as what are the characteristics of patients who are not using uh, disease-modifying drugs, to what degree does this represent an access problem or um, inherent bias in the system. Uh, we can look at new aspects, such as cognition, which hasn't been studied nearly as well, various patient uh, um, experience dimensions, uh, such as stigma, which has really been not looked at very carefully, especially in a systematic way, depression, fatigue, these kinds of things. And then we can use this curated clinical data for a whole range of translational research activity, ranging from using the biobank to develop biomarkers all the way through assessing newer forms of digital technology that might be used out of the office. Just a quick aside before I get into the issues of data access um, is that one of the most important aspects of a learning health system such as this is the potential to dramatically reduce the cost 
of uh, developing new technology. So typically, if I were to develop a new app um, or, or a new approach to monitoring behavior, you know, with, with using observational data from um, ver various forms of digital technologies, to validate that ordinarily would require a research project. And the most, the biggest cost is not the new technology. The biggest cost is characterizing the patients, having doctors assess the patients and put the data into a database, getting MRI scans. When I was back in my academic job and writing grants, two-thirds of the cost in the grant budget uh, was for patient care costs, and only one-third was for the new research. But with um, a system such as MS-PATHS, we're already collecting clinical trial-level clinical data and imaging data. So to look at a biomarker or to look at a new technology, we can harness that and use it to ad advance translational science. So you, you also asked about access and, and who has access to this uh, data. Um, there's an extensive governance around this program that was, um, was the product of about a year's work at the very beginning of the project. And the purpose for the governance was, number one, uh, transparency. Uh, and uh, we, we also wanted to in, enhance the credibility of the program um, and, 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 and to, to, uh, uh, to incentivize or stimulate collaboration across the network. Uh, so if any of the listeners are interested in the details of the governance program, it's described uh, fairly well in, the, in a paper by Maori. In, in, at all in Frontiers of Neurology in August of uh, 2020. Uh, but the gist of it is that the investigators have free and full access to the data independent from the corporate sponsor. Uh, so the investigators have their own data use committee uh, and uh, are free to analyze the data in any way that they see fit. Um, and the co corporate sponsor of the program, Biogen, has a parallel process in which uh, they can they can analyze the data across the network, and uh, for any of their purposes, excluding commercial uh, or marketing activity. Um, and the only rule is that all of those projects, uh, approved projects, are listed in a directory that's accessible to the investigators and the, and the company. So there's free and full data sharing across the network, including anyone who's associated with an investigator at one of these 10 sites. Um, but so far, there is no public data sharing. That's, uh, it, the, this program hasn't advanced to the point of uh, making the data publicly available. That's under discussion. Perfect. And thank you, Rick, for such a detailed uh, answer. Um, I think this is extremely interesting to see how, how such programs develop uh, and what are kind of the challenges uh, that are going into the pro program and uh, how programs like MS Pass can actually help us understand um, diseases such as multiple sclerosis uh, much better. If we speak uh, about um, kind of... Um, Again, insights that we can we can we can use uh, and we can get um, out of the data, and maybe insights that we are leaving on the table uh, just because we don't have enough um, capacity to to analyze those data. So, what would be the main highlights for you from the program on that front? Kind of, what were your biggest uh, positive and maybe negative surprises uh, with regards to to the data that you are receiving, and uh, what are the largest remaining challenges uh, that you think are still present in retrieving that clinical value out of data? To start with, MS-PATHS was uh, conceived of and initiated as a demonstration project to determine feasibility of creating such a learning health system environment. 
Um, and I would say lesson number one is that it is feasible. Um, we demonstrated feasibility. Again, I'd refer the reader to the Maori paper in Frontiers in Neurology. Currently, there's around 20,000 patients uh, uh, with increasing uh, longitudinal data collection. Uh, the patient acceptance has been very high. Uh, patients uh, seem to like um, they seem to like being engaged in such a program, and uh, particularly in a, in their own uh, assessment and looking at their own data. Um, when I left Biogen in the fall uh, to to go on to more independent consulting activity, there there had been only one patient out of twenty thousand who requested that they be withdrawn from the program. So patient acceptance has been uh, very, uh, very good. Um, the third lesson that I learned is that it, it was way more difficult and costly to set this up than I had originally projected. Um, this is a uh, don't try this at home sort of experience. Um, it took a fairly large team, quite an investment, and a multi-year effort uh, to get this off the ground. And um, I, I, think, I think the cost for doing something like this uh, will come down over time, but the initiation cost is extremely high to get this going. And that probably explains in part why this hasn't been more, uh, more common. Another lesson that I learned, or that the, my, my team and I learned, is that uh, the technology solutions um, and innovation related to the technology solutions, including issues of integrating with workflow um, and uh, deployment and acceptance by the physicians, um, th those are high hurdles. And the approach we took in MSPaaS, which was to start with what is ex was already accepted. So I mentioned the cognition, dexterity, visual, and walking tests. Those were well accepted in the research arena. The innovation we introduced was to computerize those, get that automated through patient self-administered testing, and integrated with the hospital IT system so that that data was available at the point of care. Um, that that that. Is, was much easier. That was difficult, but it was much easier than starting with uh, a form of a clinical assessment that is unfamiliar to neurologists. Maybe may better, but unfamiliar. Um, so um, I would say those are two lessons. It's feasible. The technology solution and innovation is critical. A third lesson was that it uh, you, you can't initiate a program like this and expect uh, very quick results because the chronic diseases uh, such as MS or Alzheimer's disease, um, they are slow chronic illness that evolve over years and decades. So after you get something like this started, uh, the third lesson is you have to be patient and collect the data because there's only so much you can learn from cross-sectional data. You need the longitudinal data. Um, and finally, I would say that the impact of this um, has been significant. There are many publications. I could highlight some of the findings if time permits. But the impact of this is going to evolve over time, probably over the course of a decade or even more. Yeah. It is certainly a process, and uh, I think what you mentioned is is actually painting a quite a positive picture. I think, especially with with regards to your second uh, lesson, that patients are um, actively participating in such programs, uh, are not really leaving, and are interested in being part of the clinical research. Uh, that is very important, right? Because without uh, patients uh, willing to do that, uh, none of this would be possible. And we will definitely make sure to include um, the Frontiers paper in the show notes for this episode so all of our listeners can have a look at it and uh, uh, have an in-depth uh, read uh, through, through the program that you are putting together. 
You know, on that point, on patients, uh, when I was still in my Cleveland Clinic job, I asked 100, of course, when, when, when we would see patients, we would be typing into the computer and asking the patient and then typing into the computer. We, we, we were all experienced at that. The doctors spend more time on the computer than face-to-face. But I asked 100 consecutive patients if they, uh, if they were aware that all this material that I was putting into the record through the computer was largely unavailable for research to improve the condition. I asked that to 100 consecutive patients, and 100 out of 100 said they didn't know that. So patients are largely unaware that healthcare is set up uh, in a way that makes it very difficult to learn systematically. Once they understand that we can use this information for better care for them, but in addition, we can learn uh, overall across all the patients. They get very enthusiastic about it in our experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that, that ties well with, with the point that you mentioned earlier, that it is time to, to turn our um, medicine, our healthcare from art to science. <laughs> and that's uh, a very important point on that front. We can't do it without systematized data. Perfect. Rick, then we've talked a lot about multiple sclerosis, about treatment, about the role of precision medicine there. Um, If you look together into the future, let's say into the next 10 years, which uh, three major developments would you like to see in the field of multiple sclerosis treatment? And what do you think would be the role of precision medicine in that future? I think that um, MS is an excellent case study for the for the neurosciences in the sense that we've been very successful as a field in developing disease modifying therapies that have clear impact on the disease course and and these have been introduced into practice but it's also been an example of how slow the uh, progress toward personalized precision medicine and then personalized medicine has been. The practice of MS is still largely subjective, and um, I think that the, this the demonstration we did with MS PAS or, or that Biogen continues to do with its clinical partners has demonstrated that it is feasible to uh, collect better data, more quantitative and consistent standardized data that, that we still believe will drive toward precision medicine. Um, I, I think in that category, we, we need to be able to say that Mrs. Smith has a prognosis of X and Mr. Jones has a prognosis of Y. Mrs. Smith would be better off treated with this therapy, uh, and Mr. Jones would be better off treated with this therapy. And then if we had a way to systematically follow those patients using quantitative metrics with decision support to help the average physician decide when it's time to change and what, what are the best things to do. So I would say the lesson in the MS field is that we need to accelerate the timeline between introducing new treatments and developing uh, science-based approaches to precision medicine, including measuring the outcome in such a way that we could make good decisions. I think this would have dramatic benefits to patients. Now, remember, we're not talking about developing new drugs. We're talking about developing scientific approaches to using existing treatments to get better outcomes. And then if uh, payers and governments were able to pay for what works and concentrate the investment in, in, in that area and avoid paying for things that are either hurting patients or not necessary, I think this would free up funds for further innovation. Uh, in, in the MS case, we have, I think, and this is personal opinion, 
we have plenty of effective disease-modifying drugs that are immunomodulatory or anti-inflammatory. I think where the unmet need there is learning how to use these in a scientific way to optimize the outcome. Other key unmet needs in MS are treatment of a more advanced stage of the disease where neurodegeneration uh, seems to be driving clinical worsening more than brain inflammation does. That's an area where we don't have effective disease-modifying drugs. And the new frontier in MS um, is, is brain repair. Uh, this is focused mostly right now on remyelination, uh, but there are, um, there, there, there's a real need for people to get better after they've had brain injury. And I think repair strategies in MS could translate to repair strategies in a brain trauma, stroke, and other, and other conditions. I'm not going to speculate too much on the other neuropsychiatric diseases other than to say I'm hoping that once disease-modifying therapies are available in conditions like Alzheimer's disease, I'm hoping the lessons we've learned in MS, including 25 years of DMTs without good approaches to precision medicine, I'm hoping those lessons will stimulate the field to get started early on science-based approaches to treating chronic neurologic disease. Yeah, fantastic. It sounds like a bright future, and let's indeed hope that other neurological and neuropsychiatric diseases will uh, follow suit to, to MS uh, in terms of finding those effective disease-modifying therapeutics and then applying them in the best possible way. Rick, you have such a rich experience across different fields being both a clinician, researcher, being involved in pharma industry. A lot of young scientists and physicians are listening to this podcast. Which one piece of advice would you give them if they want to make a significant contribution with their career to personalized medicine? Well, first of all, I, I would say um, identify a big objective. Uh, you, you don't want to spend your career working successfully uh, on a line of work and then have people say, okay, so what? You identify something that is really important and focus on that. Um, I guess going back to the beginning, I, I, I learned that from the experience I went through personally. I wanted to see treatments for neurologic disease. I didn't want it to be just restricted to symptom therapy and emotional support. So think big. Um, prepare yourself with deep expertise in some area related to the problem, but then learn the science of, of multidisciplinary team research because the problems related to precision medicine, whether it's MS, uh, or personalized medicine, I guess you're you're calling it. Uh, th those those issues, whether whether it relates to MS or any other disease, these are inherently going to be team efforts. And effective team research is very different than an individual principal investigator line of work that can be done independently. Uh, so learn research methodology, learn multidisciplinary team research. Don't be afraid to get out of your swim lane and feel uncomfortable because that's that's really the way you're going to grow. And then the last, uh, when I was in Cleveland and um, overseeing some institution-wide training programs, um, I, I observed some characteristics that separate the failures from the successes. And these characteristics include resilience, optimism, and persistence. Uh, people who have the general ability and the expertise in their area, if they have resilience, optimism, and persistence, they tend to do very well. If they lack any of those, they tend not to do so well. So I guess that's a long way of saying identify something important, get prepared in your discipline, leave your swim lane and join teams, and be prepared to fail. Get back up and keep trying. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I hope, I hope a lot of our listeners will take this as a mantra. 
Uh, and uh, I can only second that. I think um, regardless of the field, if uh, if you want to be successful in research, uh, what you just said is extremely important, uh, kind of both from the macro perspective and then also on the day-to-day <laughs> performance, just staying resilient, staying focused is essential uh, to, to achieve success. Rick, before I let you go, uh, could you let our audience know where can they find you online in case they want to reach out to you in case of follow-up questions? Well, probably the easiest thing is LinkedIn, um, and uh, you can find uh, my information through my profile, and I, I also have a consulting company that I've created, which is on there. Uh, the the other thing someone could do would be um, to email me. It's pretty simple, rick.rudick at gmail.com, and I would answer as much as I could. Fantastic. Thank you, Rick. This was an amazing interview, and thank you so much for sharing your experience um, with MS and telling us more about MS Path uh, and, in general, the future of precision medicine in the treatment of neurological disorders. This was very, very insightful. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver the best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot com. And engage with us on social media, where we regularly share the news and exciting content on personalized medicine. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. Or use our handle, PMATCAST. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.